The Moviegoer's Guide to the Future, based on the book Films from the Future, The Technology and Morality of Sci-Fi Movies, and read by the author Andrew Maynard. That's me, by the way. Chapter 9, Transcendence. In 2005, the celebrated futurist Ray Kurzweil made a bold prediction. In 2045, he said, machines will be so smart that they'll be capable of reinventing ever more powerful versions of themselves, resulting in a runaway acceleration in machine intelligence that far outstrips what humans are capable of. Kurzweil called this the singularity, a profound, disruptive and rapid technological transformation of the world we live in, marking the transition between a human-dominated civilization and one dominated by smart machines. To Kurzweil, artificial intelligence like that explored in Chapter 8 in the movie Ex Machina is simply a stepping stone to the next phase of human evolution. In his 2005 book, The Singularity is Near, he envisaged a future where deep convergence between different areas of innovation begins to massively accelerate our technological capabilities. His projections are based in part on an exponential growth in technological progress that appears to be happening across the board, such as in the plummeting cost and speed of sequencing DNA, the continuing growth in computing power, and massive increases in data storage density and the resolution of non-invasive brain scans. They're also based on the assumption that these trends will not only continue, but accelerate. The result, he claims, will be a transformative change in not only what we can do with technology, but how increasingly advanced technologies become deeply integrated into the future of life as we know it. This, to Kurzweil, is the singularity. It's a bright point in the not-too-distant future beyond which we cannot predict the outcomes of our technological inventiveness because they're so far beyond our current understanding. And it's the imagined events leading up to and beyond such a technological transition point that the movie Transcendence draws on. To be honest, I must confess that I'm sceptical of such a technological tipping point occurring in our near future. There's enough hand-waving and speculation here to make me deeply suspicious of predictions at the pending singularity. What I do buy into, though, is the idea of rapidly developing, converging and intertwining technologies leading to a technologically driven future that is increasingly hard to predict and control. And this makes transcendence, Hollywood hyped up techno fantasy aside, a worthwhile starting point for imagining what could happen as we begin to push the boundaries of the technologically possible beyond our comprehension. Transcendence revolves round Will Castor, a visionary artificial intelligence scientist at the University of California, Berkeley, and his equally smart wife, Evelyn. The movie starts with Will presenting his work to a rapt audience. With most of the room hanging on his every word, he weaves a seductive narrative around the promise of AI solving the world's most pressing challenges. Will's lecture is one of unbounded optimism in the ingenuity of humans and the power of AI. Yet at the end of the presentation, one member of the audience aggressively accuses him of trying to create God. Will, it seems, is treading on sacred ground, and some people are getting worried that he's going too far. 
We quickly learn that Will's questioner is a member of an anti-technology activist group calling itself Revolutionary Independence from Technology, or RIFT, and his presence in the lecture is part of a coordinated attack on AI researchers. As Will leaves the lecture, he's shot and wounded by this techno-activist. At the same time, a bomb goes off elsewhere in a lab where experiments are being conducted into uploading brain states of monkeys into computers. Will survives the attack, but the bullet that hit him is laced with radioactive polonium, leading to irreversible and fatal poisoning. In a mad dash to transcend his pending death, Will, Evelyn, and their colleague and friend Max Waters set up a secret research lab. Here they attempt to upload Will's neural pathways into a powerful AI-based supercomputer before his body gives way and dies. As Will passes away, it looks like they failed until the computer containing his mind state begins to communicate. It turns out that some part of Will has survived the transition, and the resulting cyber Will quickly begins to reconfigure the code and algorithms that now define his environment. But members of Rift, worried about the consequences of what Will is doing, track down the secret lab and plan a raid to put an end to what's going on. Even as they descend on the lab, though, Evelyn connects Cyberwill to the web in an attempt to escape the activists, and he uploads himself to the internet. In the days and the weeks that follow, Cyberwill and Evelyn establish a powerful computing facility in the remote town of Brightwood. This is financed using funds that Cyberwill, flexing his new cyber muscles, siphons off from the stock market. Armed with near-limitless resources and an exponentially growing intelligence, CyberWill begins to make rapid and profound technological breakthroughs, including harnessing a Hollywood version of nanotechnology to create self-replicating nanobots that use the material around them to manufacture anything they're instructed to, atom by atom. In the meantime, members of Rift kidnap Max and try to turn him in their efforts to stop CyberWill. Max, it turns out, previously wrote a paper on the dangers of AI, which has become something of a guiding document for the techno-activists. Max initially resists Rift's efforts, but he gradually begins to see that CyberWill presents a threat that has to be stopped. At the same time, another brilliant AI scientist and former colleague of Will's, Joe Taggart, has teamed up with FBI agent Buchanan to track down CyberWill and Evelyn. As Cyberwell's powers grow, Buchanan and Taggart join forces with Max and Rift's leader, Bree, to take Cyberwell down. This loose coalition of allies soon realise there is an increased urgency to their mission. Using his growing intelligence, Cyberwell has cracked not only how to create nanobots, but how to use them to reconstruct precisely damaged tissue and cells and to upgrade living people. In a scene with rather godlike overtones, we see a local resident who's been blind from birth having their optic nerve cells repaired and being given the gift of sight. Cyberwill starts to cure and upgrade the local townspeople, but it turns out that his altruistic Fix-It Health Service also allows him to take control over those he's altered. As Cyberwill extends his control over the local population, Max and Taggart work out that they can bypass his defences if he can be persuaded to upgrade and assimilate someone carrying a targeted cyber virus. But there's a catch. Because cyber will is now distributed through the internet, taking him down will also take down every web-enabled system around the world. 
Anything that depends on the internet, finance, power, food distribution, healthcare, and many other essential systems would be disabled. As a result, the Anti-Will Alliance faces a tough trade-off. Allow CyberWill to grow in power and potentially take over the world, or shut him down and lose virtually every aspect of modern life that people rely on. The team decides to go for the nuclear option and shut CyberWill down, but they still need to work out how to deliver the virus. Up to this point, Evelyn has been a willing partner in CyberWill's growing empire. She's not sure whether this is the will she previously knew or some new entity masquerading as him, but she sticks with him nevertheless. Yet as CyberWill's power grows, Max convinces Evelyn that this is not the will she married. And the crux of his argument is that, unlike CyberWill, human will never wanted to change the world. This was Evelyn's vision, not his. Evelyn becomes convinced that CyberWill needs to be stopped and agrees to become a carrier for the virus. To succeed, though, she needs to persuade Will to assimilate her and make her a part of the CyberWorld he's creating. Not surprisingly, CyberWill knows what's going on. But there's a twist. Everything he's done has been motivated by his love for Evelyn. She wanted to change the world, and through his newfound powers, CyberWill found a way to do this for her. Using his nanobots, he discovered ways to reverse the ravages of humans on the environment and take the planet back to a more pristine state. Despite Will's love for Evelyn, he's not going to let himself be tricked into being infected. Yet, as Evelyn approaches him, she's fatally wounded in an attack on the cyber facility, leaving CyberWill with an possible choice. Save Evelyn, but in doing so become infected. Or let her die and lose the one thing he cares about the most. CyberWill chooses love and self-sacrifice over power. And as the virus enters him, his system begins to shut down. As it takes hold, internet-connected systems around the world begin to fail. At least, this is how it looks. What CyberWill's adversaries don't know is that he's transcended the rather clunky world of the internet and he's taken a cyber form of Evelyn with him. As he assimilates her, he uploads them both into an invisible network of cyber-connected nanobots. Together, they step beyond the biological and evolutionary limits into a brave new future. On one level, transcendence takes us deep into technological fantasy land. Yet the movie's themes of technological convergence, radical disruption, and anti-tech activism are all highly relevant to the future we're building and how it's impacted by the technologies we create. According to World Economic Forum founder Klaus Schwab, we are all well into a fourth industrial revolution. The first industrial revolution, according to Schwab, was spurred by the use of water power and steam to mechanize production. The second took off with the widespread use of electricity. And the third was ushered in with the digital revolution of the mid to late 20th century. Now, argues Schwab, digital, biological and physical technologies are beginning to fuse together to transform how and what we manufacture and how we live our lives. And while this may sound a little Hollywood-esque, 
It's worth remembering that the World Economic Forum is a highly respected global organization that works closely with many of the world's top movers and shakers. At the heart of this new industrial revolution is an increasing convergence between technological capabilities that is blurring the lines between biology, digital systems, and the physical and mechanical world. Of course, Technological convergence is nothing new. Most of the technologies we rely on every day depend, to some degree, on a fusion between different capabilities. Yet over the past two decades, there's been a rapid acceleration in what is possible that's been driven by a powerful new wave of convergence. Early indications of this new wave emerged in the 1970s as the fields of computing and robotics began to intertwine. This was a no-brainer of a convergence as it became increasingly easy to control mechanical systems using computer brains. But it was a growing trend in convergence between material science, genetics and neuroscience and their confluence with cyber systems and robotics that really began to accelerate the pace of change. Some of this was captured in a 2003 report on converging technologies co-edited by Mike Rocco and Bill Bainbridge at the U.S. National Science Foundation. Working with leading scientists and engineers, they explored how a number of trends were leading to, in their words, a confluence of technologies that now offer the promise of improving human lives in many ways and the realignment of traditional disciplinary boundaries that will be needed to realize this potential. And at this confluence, they saw four trends as dominating the field. Nanotechnology, biotechnology, information technology, and cognitive technology. Rocco, Bainbridge, and others argued that it's at the intersection between technologies that novel and disruptive things begin to happen, especially when it occurs between technologies that allow us to control the physical world, that's nanotechnology, biological systems, that's biotechnology, the mind, that's cognitive technology, and cyberspace, specifically information technologies. And they had a point. Where these four technological domains come together, really interesting things start to happen. For instance, scientists and technologists can begin to use nanotechnology to build more powerful computers, or to read DNA sequences faster, or build better machine-brain interfaces. Information technology can be used to design new materials or to engineer novel genetic sequences and interpret brain signals. Biotechnology can be and is being used to make new materials, to translate digital code into genetic code, and to precisely control neurons. And neurotechnology is inspiring a whole new generation of computer processors. These confluences just begin to hint at the potential embedded within the current wave of technological convergence. What Rocco and Bainbridge revealed is that we're facing a step change in how we use science and technology to alter the world around us. But their focus on nano, bio, info and cognitive technologies only scratched the surface of the transformative changes that are now beginning to emerge. To understand why we're at such a transformative point in our technological history, it's worth pausing to look at how our technological skills are growing in how we work with the most fundamental and basic building blocks of the things we make and use, starting with digital systems and extending out to the materials and products we use and the biological systems we work with. The advent of digital technologies and modern computing 
brought about a major change in what we can achieve, and it's one that we're only just beginning to fully appreciate the significance of. Of course, it's easy to chart the more obvious impacts of the digital revolution on our lives, including the widespread use of smartphones and social media. But there's an underlying trend that far exceeds many of the more obvious benefits of digital devices and systems. And this, as we saw in Chapter 7 and Ghost in the Shell, is the creation of a completely new dimension that we're now operating in, cyberspace. Cyberspace is a domain where, through the code we write, we have control over the most fundamental rules and instructions that govern it. We may not always be able to determine or understand the full implications of what we do, but we have the power to write and edit the code that ultimately defines everything that happens there. The code that most cyber systems currently rely on is made up of the basic building blocks of digital computing, the ones and zeros of binary and the bits and bytes that they're a part of. Working with these provides startling insights into what we might achieve if we could, in a similar way, write and edit the code that underlies the physical world we inhabit. And this is precisely what we're beginning to do with biological systems. Although, as we're discovering, coding biology using DNA is fiendishly complicated. Unlike the world of cyber, we had no say in designing the underlying code of biology, and as a result, we're having to work hard to understand it. Here, rather than the ones and zeros of digital code, the fundamental building blocks are the four bases that make up DNA. This language of DNA is deeply complex, and we're still a long way from being close to mastering it. But the more we learn, the closer we're getting to be able to design and engineer biological systems with the same degree of finesse we can achieve in cyberspace. Thinking about coding biology in the same way we'd code apps and other cyber systems is somewhat intuitive. There is, however, a third dimension where we're effectively learning to rewrite the base code. And this is the physical world of materials and machines. Here, the equivalent fundamental building blocks, the base code if you like, are the atoms and molecules that everything is made of. Just as we've experienced a revolution in our understanding of biology over the last century, we've also seen a parallel revolution in understanding how the arrangement and types of atoms and molecules in materials determines their behaviour. These are the physical worlds equivalent to the bits of cyber code and the bases of biological code. And with our emerging mastery of this base code of atoms and molecules, we're transforming how we can design and engineer the material world around us. Naturally, as with DNA, we're still constrained by the laws of physics as we work with atoms and molecules. We cannot create materials that defy the laws of nature, for instance, or that take on magical properties. But we can start to design and create materials and even machines that go far beyond what has previously occurred through natural processes alone. Here, our growing mastery of the base code in each of these three domains is transforming how we design and mould the world around us. And it's this that is making the current technological revolution look and feel very different from anything that's come before it. But we're also learning how to cross-code between these base codes, to mix and match what we do with bits, bases and atoms to generate new technological capabilities. And it's this convergence that is radically transforming our emerging technological capabilities. 
To get a sense of just how powerful this idea of cross-coding is, it's worth taking a look at what is often referred to as synthetic biology, a trend we touched on briefly in Chapter 2 in Jurassic Park. In 2005, the scientist and engineer Drew Endy posed a seemingly simple question. Why can't we design and engineer biological systems using DNA coding in the same way we design and engineer electronic systems? His thinking was that, complex as biology is, if we could break it down into more manageable components and modules like electrical, computer and mechanical engineers do with their systems, we could transform how biological products are designed and engineered. Endy wasn't the first to coin the term synthetic biology, but he was one of the first to introduce ideas to biological design like standardized parts, modularization, and black boxing, which is essentially designing biological modules where a designer doesn't need to know how a module works, just what it does. And in doing so, he helped establish an ongoing trend in applying non-biological thinking to biology. This convergence between biology and engineering is already leading to a growing library of what are called biobricks, or standardized biological components that, just like Lego bricks or electronic components, can be used to build increasingly complex biological circuits and devices. The power of biobricks is that engineers can systematically build biological systems that are designed to carry out specific functions without necessarily understanding the intricacies of the underlying biology. It's a bit like being able to create the Millennium Falcon out of Legos without needing to understand the chemistry behind the individual bricks, or successfully constructing your own computer with no knowledge of the underlying solid-state physics. In the same way, scientists and engineers are using biobricks to build organisms that are capable of producing powerful medicines, or signaling the presence of toxins, or even transforming pollutants into useful substances. Perhaps not surprisingly, given its audacity, Endy's vision of synthetic biology isn't universally accepted, and there are many scientists who still feel that biology is simply too complex to be treated like Legos or electronic components. Despite this, the ideas of Druendi and others are already transforming how biological systems and organisms are being designed. To get a flavour of this, you need look no further than the annual International Genetically Engineered Machine Competition, or iGEM for start. Every year, teams from around the world compete in iGEM, many of them made up of undergraduates and high school students with very diverse backgrounds and interests. Many of these teams produce genetically modified organisms that are designed to behave in specific ways, all using biological circuits built with biobricks. In 2016, for instance, winning teams modified E. coli bacteria to detect toxins in Chinese medicine, engineered a bacterium to selectively kill a parasitic mite that kills bees, and altered a bacterium to indicate the freshness of fruit by changing colour. These and many of the other competition entries provide sometimes startling insights into what can be achieved when innovative teams of people start treating biology as just another branch of engineering. But they also reflect how cross-coding between biology and cyberspace is changing our very expectations of what's possible when working with biology. To better understand this, it's necessary to go back to the idea of DNA being part of the base code of all living things. As a species, 
We've been coding in this base code for thousands of years, albeit crudely through selective breeding. More recently, we've learned how to alter this code through brute force by physically bombarding cells with edited strands of DNA or designing viruses that can deliver a payload of modified genetic material. But until just a few years ago, this biological coding was largely limited to working directly with physical materials. Yet, as the cost and ease of DNA sequencing has plummeted, all of this has changed. Scientists can now quickly and relatively cheaply read the DNA base code of complete organisms and upload them into cyberspace. Once there, they can start to redesign an experiment with this code, manipulating it in much the same way as they've learned how to work with digitized photos and video. This is a big deal, as it allows scientists and engineers to experiment with and redesign DNA-based code in ways that were impossible until quite recently. As well as tweaking or redesigning existing organisms, this is allowing them to discover how to make DNA behave in ways that have never previously occurred in nature. It's even opening the doors to training AI-based systems how to code using DNA. But this is only half the story. The other half comes with the increasing ability of scientists to not only read DNA sequences into cyberspace, but to write modified genetic code back into the real world. In the past few years, it's become increasingly easy to synthesize sequences of DNA from computer-based code. You can even mail order vials of DNA that have been constructed to your precise specifications and have them delivered to your home or lab in a matter of days. In other words, scientists, engineers, and in fact pretty much anyone who puts their mind to it can upload genetic code into cyberspace, digitally alter it, then download it back into the physical world and into real living organisms. This is all possible because of our growing ability to cross-code between biology and cyberspace. It doesn't take much imagination to see what a step change in our technological capabilities cross-coding like this may bring about. And it's not confined to biology and computers. Cross-coding is also happening between biology and materials, between materials and cyberspace, and at the nexus of all three domains. This is a powerful and transformative science and technology. Yet with this emerging mastery of the world we live in, there's perhaps a greater livelihood than ever of us making serious and irreversible mistakes. And this is where technological convergence comes hand in hand with an urgent need to understand and navigate the potential impacts of our newfound capabilities before it's too late. On January the 15th, 1813, 14 men were hanged outside York Castle in England for crimes associated with technological activism. It was the largest number of people ever hanged in a single day at the castle. These hangings were a decisive move against an uprising protesting the impacts of increased mechanisation, one that became known as the Luddite movement after its alleged leader, Ned Ludd. It's still unclear whether Ned Ludd was a real person or a conveniently manufactured figurehead. 
Either way, the Luddite movement of early 19th century England was real, and it was bloody. England in the late 1700s and early 1800s was undergoing a scientific and technological transformation. At the tail end of the Age of Enlightenment, entrepreneurs were beginning to combine technologies in powerful new ways to transform how energy was harnessed, how new materials were made, how products were manufactured, and how goods were transported. Much like today, it was a time of dramatic technological and social change. The ability to use new knowledge and to exploit materials in new ways was increasing at breakneck speed, and those surfing the wave found themselves on an exhilarating ride into the future. But there were casualties, not least amongst those who began to see their skills superseded and their livelihoods trashed in the name of progress. In the 1800s, one of the more prominent industries in the English Midlands was using knitting frames to make garments and cloth out of wool and cotton. Using these manual machines was a sustaining business for tens of thousands of people. It didn't make them rich, but it was a living. By some accounts, there were around 30,000 knitting frames in England at the turn of the century, 25,000 of them in the Midlands, serving the cloth and clothing needs of the country. As the first industrial revolution gathered steam, though, mass production began to push out these manual labour-intensive professions, and knitting frames were increasingly displaced by steam-powered industrial mills. Faced with poverty and in a fight for their livelihoods, a growing number of workers turned to direct action and began smashing the machines that were replacing them. From historical records, they weren't opposed to the technology so much as how it was being used to profit others at their expense. The earliest records of machine smashing began in 1811, but escalated rapidly as the threat of industrialization loomed. In response, the British government passed the Destruction of Stocking Frames Etc. Act of 1812, also known as the Frame Breaking Act, which allowed for those found guilty of breaking stocking or lace frames to face deportation to remote colonies or even the death penalty. Galvanised by the act, the Luddite movement escalated, culminating in the murder of mill owner William Horsfall in 1812 and the hanging of 17 Luddites and transportation of seven more. It marked a turning point in the conflict between Luddites and industrialization, and by 1816, the movement had largely dissipated. Yet the name Luddite lives on as an epithet thrown at people who seemingly stand in the way of technological progress, including those who dare to ask if we're marching blindly into technological risks that, with some foresight, could be avoided. These, according to the narratives that emerge around technological innovation, are the new Luddites or neo-Luddites. This is usually a term of derision and censorship that has a tendency to be attached to individuals and groups who appear to oppose technological progress. Yet the history of the Luddite movement suggests that the term carries with it a lot more nuance than is sometimes apparent. Back in 2009, I asked a number of friends and colleagues working in civil society organisations to contribute to a series of articles for the blog 2020 Science. I was very familiar with the sometimes critical stances that some of these colleagues took on advances in science and technology, and I wanted to get a better understanding of how they saw the emerging relationship between society and innovation. 
One of my contributors was Jim Thomas from the Environmental Action Group ETC. I'd known Jim for some time and was familiar with the highly critical position he sometimes took on emerging technologies, and I was intrigued to know more about what drove him and some of his group's members. Jim's piece started out quite cleverly, I thought, with, and I quote, I should admit right now that I'm a big fan of the Luddites. He went on to describe a movement that was inspired not by distrust of technology, but by desire to maintain fair working conditions. Jim's article provides a nuanced perspective on Luddism that is often lost as accusations of being a Luddite or neo-Luddite are thrown around. And it's one that I must confess I have rather a soft spot for. So much so that when Elon Musk, Bill Gates and Stephen Hawking were nominated for the annual Luddite Award, I countered with an article titled, If Elon Musk is a Luddite, Count Me In. Despite the actions and the violence that were associated with the movement, the Luddites were not fighting against technology, but against its socially discriminatory and unjust use. These were people who had embraced a previous technology that not only gave them a living, but also provided their peers with an important commodity. They were understandably upset when, in the name of progress, wealthy industrialists started to take away their livelihood to line their own pockets. The Luddites fought hard for their jobs and their way of life. More than this, though, the movement forced a public dialogue around the broader social issues of indiscriminate technological innovation, and in the process, it got people thinking about what it means to be socially responsible as new technologies were developed and used. Ultimately, the movement failed. As society embraced technological change, the way was paved for major advances in manufacturing capabilities. Yet, as the Luddite movement foreshadowed, there were casualties along the way, most often amongst communities who didn't have the political or social agency to resist being used and abused. And as was seen in Chapter 6 in the movie Elysium, we're still seeing these casualties as new technologies drive a wedge between those who benefit from them and those who suffer as a consequence of them. These wedges are often complex. For instance, the gig economy that's emerging around companies like Uber, Lyft and Airbnb is enabling people to make more money in new ways. But it's also leading to discrimination and worker abuse in some cases, as well as elevating the stress of job insecurity. A whole raft of innovations, from advanced manufacturing to artificial intelligence, are threatening to completely redraw the job landscape. These and other advances present real and serious threats to people's livelihoods. In many cases, they also threaten deeply held beliefs and worldviews and force people to confront a future where they feel less comfortable and more vulnerable. As a result, there is, in some quarters, a palpable backlash against technological innovation as people protect what's important to them. Many of these people would probably not consider themselves Luddites, but I suspect plenty of them would be sympathetic to smashing the machines and technologies that they feel threaten them. This anti-technology sentiment seems to be gaining ground in some areas, and it's easy to see why someone who's unaware of the roots of the Luddite movement might derisively brand people who represent it as neo-Luddites. Yep, this is a misplaced branding, as the true legacy of Ned Ludd's movement 
is not about rejecting technology, but ensuring that new technologies are developed for the benefit of all, not just a privileged few. This is a narrative that Transcendence explores through the tension between Will's accelerating technological control and Rift's social activism, one that echoes aspects of the Luddite movement. But there are also differences between this tale of technological resistance and the events from 200 years ago that inspired it that are reminiscent of more recent concerns around direct action and techno-terrorism in particular. Between 1978 and 1995, three people were killed and 23 others injured in terrorist attacks by one of the most extreme anti-technology activists of modern time. Ted Kaczynski, also known as the Unabomber, conducted a reign of terror through targeting academics and airlines with homemade bombs until his arrest in 1996. His issue? He fervently believed that we've lost our way as a society with our increasing reliance on and subservience to technology. Watch or read enough science fiction, and you'll be forgiven for thinking that techno-terrorism is a major threat in today's society, and that groups like Transcendence's Rift are an increasingly likely phenomenon. Despite this, though, it's remarkably hard to find evidence for widespread techno-terrorism in real life. Yet dig deep enough, and small but worrying pockets of violent resistance against technological progress do begin to surface, often closely allied to techno-terrorism's close cousin, eco-terrorism. In 2002, James F. Jarbo, then Domestic Terrorism Section Chief of the FBI's Counterterrorism Division, testified before a House subcommittee on the emerging threat of eco-terrorism. In his testimony, he identified the Animal Liberation Front, or ALF, and Earth Liberation Front, or ELF, as serious terrorist threats, and claimed that they were responsible at the time for, and I quote, more than 600 criminal acts in the United States since 1996, resulting in damages in excess of $43 million, but no deaths. Jarbo's testimony traces the recent history of eco-terrorism back to the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, a disaffected faction of the environmental activist group Greenpeace that formed in the 1970s. Then, in the 1980s, a new direct action group, Earth First, came into prominence, spurred by Rachel Carson's 1962 book Silent Spring and a growing dissatisfaction with ineffective protests against the ravages of industrialization. Earth First was known for their unpleasant habit of inserting metal or ceramic spikes into trees scheduled to be cut for lumber, leaving a rather nasty and potentially fatal surprise for those felling or milling them. In the 1990s, members of Earth First formed the group ELF and switched tactics to destroying property using timed incendiary devices. Groups such as ELF and Earth First, together with their underlying concerns over the potentially harmful impacts of technological innovation, clearly provide some of the inspiration for Rift. Yet beyond the activities of these two groups, which have been predominantly aimed at combating environmental harm rather than resisting technological change, it's surprisingly hard to find examples of substantial and coordinated techno-terrorism. Today's Luddites, it seems, 
are more comfortable breaking metaphorical machines from the safety of their academic ivory towers rather than wreaking havoc in the real world. Yet there are still a small number of individuals and groups who are motivated to harm others in their fight against emerging technologies and the risks that they believe they represent. On August the 8th, 2011, Armando Herrera Corral, a computer scientist at the Monterey Institute of Technology and Higher Education in Mexico City, received an unusual package. Being slightly wary of it, he asked his colleague Alejandro Aceves Lopez to help him open it. In opening the package, Aceves set off an enclosed pipe bomb and metal shards injected by the device pierced his chest. He survived but had to be rushed to intensive care. The package was from a self-styled techno-terrorist group calling itself Individuals Tending Towards Savagery or ITS. ITS had set its sights on combating advances in nanotechnology through direct and violent action and was responsible for two previous bombing attempts, both in Mexico. ITS justified its actions through a series of communiques, the final one being released in March 2014. Reading the communique they released the day after the August the 8th bombing, what emerges is a distorted vision of nanotechnology that, to them, justified short-term violence to steer society away from imagined existential risks. At the heart of these concerns was their fear of nanotechnologies creating nanomachines that would end up destroying the Earth. ITS's nanomachines are remarkably similar to the nanobots seen in Transcendence. Just to be clear, these do not present a plausible or rational risk, as we'll get to shortly. Yet it's easy to see how these activists twisted together the speculative musings of scientists along with a fractured understanding of reality to justify their deeply misguided actions. In articulating their concerns, ITS drew on a highly influential essay published in Wired magazine in the year 2000 by Sun Microsystems founder Bill Joy. Joy's article was published under the title Why the Future Doesn't Need Us, and in it he explores his worries that the technological capabilities being developed at the time were on the cusp of getting seriously out of hand, including his concerns over a hypothetical grey goo of out-of-control nanobots first suggested by futurist and engineer Eric Drexler. Joy's concerns clearly resonated with ITS, and somehow in the minds of the activists, these concerns translated into an imperative to carry out direct action against nanotechnologists in an attempt to save future generations. This is somewhat ironic given Joy's clear abhorrence of violent action against technologists. Yet despite this, Joy's speculation over the spectre of grey goo was part of the inspiration behind ITS's actions. Beyond grey goo, though, there exists another intriguing connection between Joy and ITS. In his essay, Joy cites a passage from Ray Kurzweil's book, The Age of Spiritual Machines, that troubled him, and it's worth reproducing part of that passage here. So I quote, First, let us postulate that the computer scientists succeeded in developing intelligent machines that can do all things better than human beings can do them. In that case, presumably, all work will be done by vast, highly organized systems machines and no human effort will be necessary. Either of two cases might occur. The machines might be permitted to make all their own decisions without human oversight or else human control over the machines might be retained. 
If the machines are permitted to make all their own decisions, we can't make any conjectures as to the results because it is impossible to guess how such machines might behave. We only point out that the fate of the human race would be at the mercy of the machines. It might be argued that the human race would never be foolish enough to hand over all the power to the machines, but we are suggesting neither that the human race would voluntarily turn power over to the machines, nor that the machines would willfully seize power. What we do suggest is that the human race might easily permit itself to drift into a position of such dependence on the machines that it would have no practical choice but to accept all of the machines' decisions. As society and the problems that face it become more and more complex and machines become more and more intelligent, people will let machines make more of their decisions for them, simply because machine-made decisions will bring better results than man-made ones. Eventually, a stage may be reached at which the decisions necessary to keep the system running will be so complex that human beings will be incapable of making them intelligently. At that stage, the machines will be in effective control. People won't be able to just turn the machines off because they will be so dependent on them that turning them off would amount to suicide. Kurzweil's passage shifted Joy's focus of concern onto artificial intelligence and intelligent machines. This was something that resonated deeply with him. But to his consternation, he discovered that this passage was not, in fact, written by Kurzweil, but by the Unabomber. And it was merely quoted by Kurzweil. Joy was conflicted. As he writes... Kaczynski's actions were murderous and, in my view, criminally insane. But simply saying this does not dismiss his arguments. As difficult as it is for me to acknowledge, I saw some merit in the reasoning in this single passage. Joy worked through his concerns with reason and humility, carving out a message that innovation can be positively transformative but only if we handle the power of emerging technologies with great respect and responsibility. Yet ITS took his words out of context and saw his begrudging respect for Kaczynski's arguments as validation of their own ideas. The passage above that was cited by Kurzweil and then by Joy comes from Kaczynski's 35,000-word manifesto published in 1995 by the Washington Post and the New York Times. Since its publication, this manifesto has become an intriguing touchstone for action against perceived irresponsible and permissionless technology innovation. Some of its messages have resonated deeply with technologists like Kurzweil, Joy and others, and have led to deep introspection around what socially responsible technology innovation means. Others, most notably groups like ITS, have used it to justify more direct action to curb what they see as the spread of a technological blight on humanity. And a surprising number of scholars have tried to tease out socially relevant insights on technology and its place within society from the manifesto. The result is an essay that some people find easy to read selectively, cherry-picking the passages that confirm their own beliefs and ideas while conveniently ignoring others. Yet, 
Taken as a whole, Kaczynski's manifesto is a poorly informed rant against what he refers to pejoratively as leftists, and a naive justification for reverting to a more primitive society where individuals had what he believed was more agency over how they lived, even if this meant living in poverty and disease. Fortunately, despite Kaczynski, ITS and fictitious groups like Rift, violent anti-technology activism in the real world continues to be relatively rare. Yet the underlying concerns and ideologies are not. Here, Bill Joy's article in Wired provides a sobering nexus between the futurist imaginings of Kurzweil and Drexler, Kaczynski's anti-technology-motivated murders, and the bombings of ITS. Each of these are worlds apart in how they respond to new technologies, but the underlying visions, fears, and motivations are surprisingly similar. In today's world, most activists working towards more measured and responsible approaches to technology innovation operate within social norms and through established institutions. Indeed, there is a large and growing community of scholars, entrepreneurs and advocates and even policymakers who are sufficiently concerned about the future impacts of technology innovation that they're actively working within appropriate channels to bring about change. Included here are cross-cutting initiatives like the Future of Life Institute, which, as was discussed in Chapter 8, worked with experts from around the world to formulate the 2017 set of principles for beneficial AI development. There are many other examples of respected groups as well as more shadowy and anarchic ones like the hacktivist organisation Anonymous that are asking tough questions about the line between what we can do and what we should be doing to ensure new technologies are developed safely and responsibly. Yet the divide between legitimate action and illegitimate action is not always easy to discern, especially if the perceived future impacts of powerful technologies could possibly lead to hundreds of millions of people being harmed or killed. At what point do the stakes become so high around powerful technologies that violent means justify the ends? Here, Transcendence treads an intriguing path as it leads viewers on a journey from reacting to rift with abhorrence to begrudging acceptance. As Cyberworld's powers grow, we're sucked into Rift's perspective that the risk to humanity is so great that only violent and direct action can stop it. And so Brie and her followers pivot in the movie from being antagonists to heroes. This is a seductive narrative. If, by allowing a specific technology to emerge, we will be condemning millions to die and many more to be subjugated, how far would you go to stop it? I suspect that a surprising number of people would harbour ideas of carrying out seemingly unethical acts in the short term for the good of future generations. And indeed, this is a topic we'll come back to in Chapter 11 and the movie Inferno. But there's a fatal flaw in this way of thinking. And that's the assumption that we can predict with confidence what the future will bring. In 1965, Gordon Moore, one of Intel's founders, observed that the number of transistors being squeezed into integrated circuits was doubling around every two years. He went on to predict with some accuracy that this trend would continue for the next decade. 
As it turned out, what became to be known as Moore's Law continued way past the 1970s and is still going strong, although there are indications that it may be beginning to falter. It was an early example of exponential extrapolation being used to predict how the future of a technology would evolve. And it's one of the most oft-cited cases of exponential growth in technology innovation. In contrast to linear growth, where outputs and capabilities increase by a constant amount each year, exponential growth leads to them multiplying rapidly. For instance, if a company produced a constant 100 widgets a year, after five years, it would have produced 500 widgets. But if it increased production exponentially by 100 times each year, after five years, it would have produced 100 million widgets. In this way, exponential trends can lead to massive advances over short periods of time, but because they involve such large numbers, predictions of exponential growth are dangerously sensitive to the assumptions that underlie them. Yet, they are extremely beguiling when it comes to predicting future technological breakthroughs. Moore's Law it has to be said, has weathered the test of time remarkably well, even when data that predates more is taken into account. In the supporting material for his book The Singularity is Near, Ray Kurzweil plotted out the calculations per second per $100,000 of computing hardware, a convenient proxy for computer power, extrapolating back to some of the earliest non-digital computing engines of the early 1900s. Between 1900 and 1998, he showed a relatively consistent exponential increase in calculations per second per $100,000, representing a 20 trillion times increase in computing power over this period. Based on these data, Kurzweil projected that it will only be a short time before we're able to fully simulate the human brain using computers and create superintelligent computers that will far surpass humans in their capacity. Yet these predictions are misleading because they fall into the trap of assuming that past exponential growth predicts similar growth rates in the future. One of the major issues with extrapolating exponential growth into the future is that it massively amplifies uncertainties in the data. Because each small step in the future extrapolation involves incredibly large numbers, it's easy to be off by a factor of thousands or millions in predictions. These may just look like small variations on plots like those produced by Kurzweil and others, but in real life, they can mean the difference between something happening in our lifetime or a thousand years from now. There is another equally important risk in extrapolating exponential trends, and it's the harsh reality that exponential relationships never go on forever. As compelling as they look on a computer screen or the page of a book, such trends always come to an end at some point, as some combination of factors interrupt them. If these factors lie somewhere in the future, it is incredibly hard to work out where they will occur and what their effects will be. Of course, Moore's Law seems to defy these limitations. It's been going strong for decades, and even though people have been predicting for years that we're about to reach its limit, it's still holding true. But there's a problem with this perspective. Moore's Law isn't really a law so much as a guide. 
Many years ago, the semiconductor industry got together and decided to develop an industry roadmap to guide the continuing growth of computing power. They used Moore's Law for this roadmap and committed themselves to investing in research and development that would keep progress on track with Moore's predictions. What is impressive is that this strategy has worked. Moore's Law has become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yet for the past 60-plus years, this progress has relied extensively on the same underlying transistor technology, with the biggest advances involving making smaller components and removing heat from them more efficiently. Unfortunately, you can only make transistors so small before you hit fundamental physical limits. Because of this, Moore's Law is beginning to run into difficulties. What we don't know is whether an alternative technology will emerge that keeps the current trend in increasing computer power going. But at the moment, it looks like we may be about to take a bit of a breather from the past few decades of growth. In other words, the exponential trend of the past probably won't be as great at predicting advances over the next decade or so. Not surprisingly, perhaps, there are those who believe that new technologies will keep the exponential growth in computing power going to the point that processing power alone matches that of the human brain. But exponential growth sadly never lasts. To illustrate this, imagine a simple thought experiment involving bacteria multiplying on a laboratory Petri dish. Assume that initially these bacteria divide and multiply every 20 minutes. If we start with one bacterium, we would have two after 20 minutes, four after 40 minutes, eight after an hour, and so on. Based on this trend, if you ask someone to estimate how many bacteria you'd have after a week, there's a chance that they'd do the math and tell you you'd have 5 times 10 to the power of 151 of them. That's 5 with 151 zeros after it. This is, after all, what exponential growth predicts. That is a lot of bacteria. In fact, it's an impossible amount. This many bacteria would weigh many, many times more than the mass of the entire universe. The prediction may be mathematically reasonable, but it's practically nonsensical. Why? Because in a system with limited resources and competing interests, something's got to give at some point. In the case of the bacteria, the growth is limited by the size of the dish they're contained in, the amount of nutrients available, how a growing population changes the conditions for growth, and many other factors. The bacteria cannot outgrow their resources, and as they reach their limits, the growth rate slows or in extreme cases may even crash. We find the same pattern of rapid growth followed by a tail-off or a crash in pretty much any system that at some point seems to show exponential growth. The exponential bit is inevitably present for a limited period of time only. And while exponential growth may go on longer than expected, once you leave the realm of hard data, you really are living on the edge of reality. The upshot of this is that while Kurzweil's singularity may one day become a reality, there's a high chance that unforeseen events are going to interfere with his exponential predictions, either scuppering the chances of something transformative happening or pushing it back hundreds or even thousands of years. And this is the problem with the technologies that we see emerging in transcendence. It's not that they're necessarily impossible, although some of them are as they play fast and loose with what are, as far as we know, immutable laws of physics. 
it's that they depend on exponential extrapolation that ignores the problems of error amplification and resource constraints. This is a mere inconvenience when it comes to science fiction plot narratives. Why let reality get in the way of a good story? But it becomes more serious when real-world decisions and actions are based on similar speculation. In 2003, Britain's Prince Charles made headlines by expressing his concerns about the dangers of grey goo. Like Bill Joy, he'd become caught up in Eric Drexler's idea of self-replicating nanobots that could end up destroying everything in their attempt to replicate themselves. Prince Charles later backtracked, but not until after his concerns had led to the UK's Royal Society and Royal Academy of Engineering launching a far-reaching study on the implications of nanotechnology. The popular image of nanobots as miniaturised, fully autonomous robots is one of the zombies of the nanotechnology world. It's an image that just won't die, despite having barely a thread of scientific plausibility about it. There's something about the term nanobot that journalists cannot resist using, and that university press offices seem capable of resisting in their attempts to make nanoscale research seem sexy and futuristic. Even as I write this, a quick Google search returns three pages of news articles mentioning nanobots in the last month alone. Yet despite the popular image's appeal, there's a world of difference between the technology seen in Transcendence and what's happening in labs now. This is not to discredit the research that often underlies the use of the buzzword. Scientists are making amazing strides on disease-busting particles that can be biologically programmed to seek out and destroy cancer cells, or can be guided through the bloodstream using magnets or ultrasonic waves. And there have been some quite incredible breakthroughs in developing complex molecules, including using DNA as a programmable molecular construction set, that operate much like minuscule molecular machines. These are all advances that have attracted the term nanobot. And yet, there are night and day differences between the science they represent and imagined scenarios of minute autonomous robots swimming through our bodies or swarming through the environment. Yet the idea of nanobots as a future reality persists. As an early popularizer of nanobots, Eric Drexler was inspired by the biological world and the way in which organisms have evolved to efficiently manufacture everything they need from the atoms and molecules around them. To Drexler, many biological molecules are simply highly efficient molecular machines that strip materials apart atom by atom and reassemble them into ever more complex structures. In many ways, he saw these as analogous to the machines that humans have developed over the centuries, wheels, cogs, engines, and even simple robots, but at a much, much smaller level. And he speculated that once we have full mastery over how to precisely build materials atom by atom, we could not only match what nature has achieved, but surpass it, creating a new era of technologies based on nanoscale engineering. 
Part of Drexler's speculation was that it should be possible to create microscopically small self-replicating machines that are able to disassemble the materials around them and use the constituent atoms to build new materials, including replicas of themselves. This would allow highly efficient, atomically precise manufacturing and nanobots that can make almost anything on demand out of what they could scavenge from the surrounding environment. Drexler's ideas are the inspiration behind the nanobots seen in Transcendence, where these microscopically small machines are capable of building and rebuilding solar cells, support structures, and even replacement limbs and organs, all out of the atoms, molecules, and materials in their environment. While this is a vision that sounds decidedly science fiction, it's one that on the surface looks like it should work. After all, it's what nature does, and it does so well. We're all made of atoms and molecules, and depend on evolved biological machines that use and make DNA, proteins, cells, nerves, bone skins, and so on. And just like nature, where there's a constant battle between good biological machines, the molecular machines that keep us healthy and well, and bad ones, the proteins, viruses, and bacteria that threaten our health, Drexler's vision of molecular machines is one that also has its potential downsides. One scenario that Drexler explored was the possibility that a poorly designed and programmed nanobot could end up having an overriding goal of creating replicas of itself, potentially leading to a runaway chain reaction. Drexler speculated that if these nanobots were designed to use carbon as their basic building blocks, they would only stop replicating when every last atom of carbon in the world had been turned into a nanobot. As we're all made of carbon, this would be a problem. This is the grey goose scenario, and it's what prompted both Bill Joy and Prince Charles to raise the alarm over the risks of nanotechnology. And yet, despite their concerns and those of others, it is a highly improbable scenario. In order to work, these rogue nanobots would need some source of power. Like we find in biology, this would most likely come from chemical reactions. The heat they could scavenge from their surroundings, heat directly from the sun, or most likely a combination of all three of these. But to scavenge energy, the nanobots would need to be pretty sophisticated. And to maintain and replicate this sophistication, they would need an equally sophisticated diet that would depend on more than just carbon alone. In addition to this, because there would be replication errors and nanobot malfunctions, these nanomachines would need to be programmed with the ability to repair themselves. This in turn would require additional energy demands and levels of sophistication. Even with a high level of sophistication, random errors would most likely lead to generations of bots that either petered out because they weren't perfect, or started to behave differently from previous generations, much like biological mutations. And this leads to a third challenge. At some point, the nanobots would find themselves hitting the limits of being able to replicate exponentially. This might be due to an accumulation of replication errors or increasing competition with mutant nanobots. Or it could be brought about by a scarcity of physical space or energy or raw materials. However it happened, a point would be reached where the population of nanobots either became unsustainable and crashed, or reached equilibrium with its surroundings. The chances of nanobots overcoming all three of these challenges and creating a grey goose scenario are 
infinitesimally small. This is, in part, because the chances of something else happening to scupper their plans of world domination are overwhelmingly large. And we know this because we have a wonderful example of self-replicating systems to study, life on Earth. DNA-based life is, in many ways, the perfect example of Drexler's molecular machines. It shows us what is possible, but it also indicates rather strongly what is not, as well as demonstrating what is necessary to create a sustainable system. We know from studying the natural world that sustainability depends on diversity and adaptability, two characteristics that are notably absent in the Grey Goose scenario. We also know that sustainable systems based on evolved molecular machines are incredibly complex, so complex in fact that they are light years away from what we are currently capable of designing and manufacturing. In effect, for a Drexler-type form of nanotechnology to emerge, we would have to invent an alternative form of biology, one that is most likely as complex as the biology that we're all familiar with. This may one day be possible, but at the moment, we're about as far from doing this as the Neanderthals were from inventing quantum computing. Yet here's the rub. Even though self-replicating nanobots and grey goo lie for now in the realm of fantasy, this hasn't stopped the idea from having an impact on the decisions people make, including the decisions of ITS to attempt to murder a number of nanotechnologists. This is where technological speculation gets serious in a bad way. It's one thing to speculate about what the future of tech might look like, but it's another thing entirely where make-believe is treated as plausible reality and this, in turn, leads to actions that end up harming people. Technoterrorism is an extreme case and thankfully a rare one, at the moment at least. But there are many more layers of decision-making that can lead to people in the environment being harmed if science fantasy is mistaken for science fact. If policies and regulations, for instance, are based on improbable scenarios or a lack of understanding of what a technology can and cannot do, people are likely to suffer unnecessarily. Similarly, if advocacy groups block technologies because of what they imagine their impacts will be, but they're working with implausible or impossible scenarios, people's lives will unnecessarily be impacted. And if investors and consumers avoid certain technologies because they've bought into a narrative that belongs more in science fiction than science reality, potentially beneficial technologies may never see the light of day. Of course, all new technologies come with risks and challenges, and it's important that as a society we work together on addressing these as we think about the technological futures we want to build. In some cases, the consensus may be that there are some routes that we're not ready for yet. But what a tragedy it would be if we turned away from some technological futures that could transform lives for the better, simply because we became confused between reality and make-believe. Here, transcendence definitely lives in the world of make-believe, especially when it comes to visions of nanotechnology that's woven into the movie's narrative. And this is fine as long as we're aware of it, but as soon as we start to believe our own fantasies, we have a problem. Thankfully, not every science fiction movie is quite as rooted in fantasy as Transcendence. As we'll see with the next movie, The Man in the White Suit, some provide surprisingly deep insights into the reality of cutting-edge science and emerging technologies, including the realities of modern-day technology. 
The Moviegoer's Guide to the Future is based on the book Films from the Future, The Technology and Morality of Sci-Fi Movies and is read by the author Andrew Maynard.